arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I got a quarter million dollars worth of fish. Weather's been spitting faxes every hour. They're running out of scary words. It's being called the worst storm in recorded history. Hurricane Grace is accelerating off of Sable Island. Once it starts, no force on Earth can stop it. These storms have collided. You're gonna run right into this thing. Are they okay? No one knows. Please, God, get them there. Call it the perfect storm. Good evening, I'm Robert P. Fitton. The perfect storm has now become synonymous with confluent events that seemingly never should have taken place. Although the Wolfgang Peterson film may have taken some license with the facts, the phrase, the perfect storm, remains in the popular jargon. I bring this jargon into green haze because a slight juxtaposition of events for Sam and Nina allowed the agency to keep its closely guarded project hidden. The weight of the agency and the media are about to envelop Sam and Nina in tonight's episode. Roy Garrison is digging for information, and his digging puts him in further danger. We begin tonight's episode on the Bridge of Lions in St. Augustine, Florida, where three high-level people, led by Grafton, meet at the crest of the bridge to sum up the Green Haze project and to look ahead. Green Haze by Robert P. Fitton begins now. Green Haze, Chapter 8. Grafton walked ahead of Schultz and Tillman to the crest of the bridge. He leaned over the concrete railing and faced the blue waters, studied every boat and individual along the shore. This was a welcome break from the long, intense meetings. In a few hours, he would leave for Africa. Green Haze had gone extremely well and would near completion within a month, maybe sooner. He was tired of the pressure, the duplicity, and the lack of reward. Now it was time to leave the agency and the fast, highly charged lifestyle. Twenty-four years of similar operations, constantly putting his life in danger, had altered his consciousness. No longer did he possess unquestioning zeal. Corporations called it burnout, and somebody had sensed it. Three weeks had passed since a short, blonde-haired woman sprinted by him while he was jogging outside Washington. The words were all Operation Code words. Lake Shar is blue in the summer. As she ran back to the main road, he increased his pace, but she outdistanced him and then was gone. The same words came alive again at a Montreal dinner party last weekend. This time, a British arms dealer named Roland James used the same phrase, and Grafton promptly escorted him to the outside balcony. He gazed over the snow-covered city's twinkling lights, and then they pinned the guy against the wall. James didn't flinch until Grafton threatened him with his luger. James revealed a huge chipped tooth as he smiled and said he would make Grafton rich. Any objections to that? Grafton should have either shot him or brought him in for questioning, but he said nothing, which may have allowed him to interpret the silence as a tacit consent. He not only allowed James's return into the party, but let him disappear. 
Grafton later checked James's employment record with various agencies, numerous governments, and a penchant for extorting large sums of money. His last known employer was an arms merchant who sold to the rebels in Russian Chechnya. James had taunted him with the promise of money, never saying exactly what he wanted Grafton to do, and Grafton had not stopped him. James was involved with the Chinese and currently working with the rebels fighting in the East African country of Pangaea in the middle of the Green Haze operation. It was long suspected that the Chinese wanted a sphere of influence in East Africa, and now they were going after him to accomplish their ends. Schultz, his thinning curly hair and glasses glistening in the sunshine, walked briskly with a chain-smoking Tillman. It was odd to see Schultz in a bright party shirt and shorts when he usually wore a suit. A slight wind ruffled his hair as he neared the bridge crest. Grafton glanced back toward the beach area. Schultz's crackling voice filled the air. Craig, you don't look like a damn tourist. We dress down and you wear a turtleneck and sports coat. 72 degrees. Grafton produced a hint of a grin and stared down at Schultz's scrawny white legs. Here he comes, varicose veins and all. Tillman, wearing a black running suit with a bright green trim, choked on a cigarette. <laughs> touché, Bill, touché. He patted Grafton on the back as they turned toward the river. Come on, Craig, lighten up. We're in good shape now. This thing has gone forward despite all the screw-ups and the nosy reporters. Garrison is on the way to his brother's home in San Luis Obispo, according to John. No calls to the newspaper, no stories. Well, you can thank Bruce Keaton for that, said Tillman. Grafton nodded and leaned forward. He scanned the boats and the riverbank. Green haze was high risk, and even on an innocent bridge stroll, he trusted no one. Warren, we're going to need more money. Tillman hunched over as he inhaled. Tell me how much and it'll be there. High finance. The jogging cigarette smoker. Neiman Marcus retails this suit out at $300. Grafton stared across the river. You get what you pay for. Schultz chuckled. My wife shops at Kmart. <laughs> With your salary? asked Tillman. I'm wearing the blue light special. Grafton leaned on the wide barrier. I believe it. Tillman nodded, took a drag on the cigarette, and tossed it over the bridge. He exhaled as he spoke. What about that last shipment, Craig? Was Manville pleased? Everything was unloaded at the Lake Shar base. They should have had enough weapons for the final push to Argos. Grafton watched a small pleasure boat cut the clear waters under the bridge. Our problem is not with arms, it's with Manville. Manville is an egotistical tyrant, makes poor military judgments. Unfortunately, we have to deal with him to accomplish our own ends. I can't be any worse than President Mbutu, said Tillman. There are reports all over the media about this human rights things. People have just disappeared. Well, much of that is our own dissemination. Mbutu isn't a military man. He's a politician, said Grafton. Well, it's Seville who seems to understand the country. I read an interview in the Times. This man is not stupid. Schultz leaned around Grafton and faced Tillman. He was educated at Columbia. Grafton nodded. That interview was arranged to undermine Mbutu. Oddly enough, many of the abuses you allude to are not linked to Seville. Mbutu has his own private force. I agree, Seville is the best man. There are reports that I've seen that he may be trying to make foreign contacts. 
Grafton slowly turned and looked across Tillman's compressed face and dark eyes. As I alluded to, we're at the point, Warren. We need to start stockpiling cash and building out the reserves, which means accelerating the flow. He turned to Schultz. Bill, that means wrapping it up on your end. Yeah, I understand. You must be confident that Mbutu will fall, said Tillman. I'm leaving from Pangea tomorrow morning. Keep your eyes and ears open. Don't panic by what you see in the media. We'll contact you, Warren, once the Manville government is in place. Once we reroute the oil fees, your people will see a long-term situation. It's very profitable. Do you have a time frame, Craig? No more than two weeks. Under no circumstances do I want you in Pangea before I personally tell you. Is that clear? Understood. We have some domestic considerations that I hope will be cleaned up. Cam Pritchett is handling that now. A summary of the FBI report states that that reported garrison has been questioned after an explosion in California. It mentioned the van and the VED. Apparently, Garrison was following up on a story with the people whose house has blown up. I hope the hell you have someone on that guy, said Schultz. Garrison was now a liability. It's enough that he might uncover things about Green Haze, but that discovery might start people looking at Grafton's own activities. Garrison is all done. Good. Grafton creased his brow and looked forward past some of the boats. It's up to Manville once everything's in place. We've done our job. Be prepared, Warren, to leave when I contact you. Once you're in Argos, we'll set up the country's finances. That's one of the first things I want in place. Grafton was still consumed by the Chinese connection and intrigued, not just by the money possibility, but what they might propose. His old zeal was renewed by the challenge of sweeping around his own agency's operations successfully. He looked across the river. In the underbrush, a lanky, dark-bearded guy snapped pictures of the bridge. What the hell is this? Grafton quickly stepped away from the barrier and they followed him. That man had a camera. He squinted and pulled out his radio. This is Grafton, below the bridge on the south side. There's an individual shooting pictures along the bank. Looks harmless, but I don't want to take any chances. Ruin that camera and get him out of here. An acknowledgement came through after a static burst. Grafton moved forward and squatted. He peered between the bridge abutments. The guy now faced the city and was taking more photographs. Then he walked up the riverbank, opened the door to a new green sob. From this distance, it was impossible to see the license plate. Oh, now he's leaving, said Schultz. This is Grafton. Guys, our photographer friend is departing the area in a green sob. The radio crackled again. We're stuck, Craig. Grafton leaned over the edge and almost lost his balance. A large food truck unloaded crates at a restaurant along the water. He turned back to the sob, now moving along the river road. Schultz hit his fist on the barrier. Damn, we don't need this. Suppose that guy works for somebody. We don't know that said Grafton, but his thoughts were fixated on Roland James. The radio sounded. Craig. Grafton held the radio. Go ahead. An Iowa license plate. We have the first two numbers, five, six. The sob disappeared into the bushes. Nobody knew about this meeting except Tillman and Schultz. He had to hope that this bearded guy was a tourist snapping nature shots. Take those two numbers. Contact who you need to in Iowa. Have the computers match up a green sob to those first two numbers. Schultz faced Grafton. I don't like this, Craig. 
No need for panic. Nothing's happened. Panicking over nothing is a waste of energy. Schultz rubbed his hands together. Then we need to get out of here. What about the Saab? asked Tillman. Grafton stared at the riverbank. They'll get him, Warren. Won't take long. Green Haze, Chapter 9 Sam flipped his directional and veered into the post office lot. He removed a film mailer from the glove compartment as his camera automatically rewound the film back into the canister. With a red felt-tip pen, he scrawled out the developing particulars on the envelope, but he paused at the return address lines. On the way back to Iowa, he and Nina would stop in Kentucky at Griff's house. Sam wrote his college friend's name and address across the mailer. He removed the last canister from the camera and placed it in a black plastic holder sealed it inside, and deposited it in the mailbox outside his window. He checked the time on his dash digital as he drove away. In a few hours, he would bring Nina to dinner. Maybe tomorrow they'd spend time on the beach before they drove back. It would be the last Florida diversion before returning to Jason. Even though Florida was idyllic, he longed to hold his son in his arms and get back to life in a small Iowa town. Nina had just returned from the hotel's boutique, her blonde hair was pulled back, and she wore a white, casual, pleated dress, tapered in the front with thin straps over her tanned shoulders. Her perfume was light. It would always remind him of their last night in St. Augustine. They were seated near the water, where they had dined all week. The busboy leaned over and lit the glass-enclosed vanilla candle, centered on the linen-white tablecloth. He poured the water from a chilled, pewter pitcher into the tall glasses. Later, Sam requested 21-year-old champagne. The waitress arrived with the cloth-wrapped green bottle. She unleashed the cork. Champagne burst out, and she slowly poured the bubbling drink into crystal pink goblets. I'll give you time to select. Sam waited outside until she left. He smiled at Nina, lifted his glass, and gazed into her crisp blue eyes. May St. Augustine ring eternal. You really want to move here, don't you? The downside is being away from everyone we know, you know, the family, school. I've been there almost ten years now. Well, by plane, it's only a couple of hours, but really moving here. She nodded slowly, and they both turned toward the river. The bridge's lamp globes glowed at sunset, and the city lights were beginning to twinkle. They enjoyed a quiet dinner, both aware of departure's sadness, and with great spontaneity, they recapped their time in Florida. After the meal, they strolled along the river and talked on a park bench about taking the sob back over the bridge to the hotel. They held hands and listened to some New Age music as Sam drove slowly down the isolated road. Ahead, bright blue and red lights flashed across the hotel's brick facade and swimming pool. He maintained his speed to the end of the road, but he downshifted as the flashing grew brighter. Three police cruisers were parked diagonally in the hotel parking lot. He brought the car to a halt about a hundred yards from the lot. There were no officers in the forward car. A small crowd of hotel staff and patrons had gathered midway down the building, and the third-floor sliders were shattered. Sam, that's our room! They ran from the car, across the lot, and into the lobby. At the front desk, a younger girl tried to reassure her frightened customers. What happened to our room? yelled Sam. Excuse me? 
Never mind. Sam tried not to run ahead down the main hall. They hurried into the stairwell, scrambled to the third floor, and then he pushed open the fire door. He held her hand and they sprinted down the narrower hall to the three cops posted outside their room. I'm Sam Peters. This is my room. What happened? The cop yelled into the bedroom. Sergeant, Peters is here. Sam pulled Nina through the doorway. Inside, more cops hovered like mourners at a funeral near the overturned beds. The room dresser drawers were removed and emptied, and their suitcases and clothes were gone. The sergeant, an older bald man in a brown suit, raised his hands into the air. They took all your stuff, Peters. You've been robbed, buddy. I hope you have good insurance. Sam double-checked the room as Nina trailed behind. Sam, all our things, everything we bought. Sam moved toward the sliders. What kind of a damned hotel is this? It happens, but it was only this room. Did you have something specific in here? You know, something valuable? My camera equipment and film. Sam looked through the broken glass. Outside in the parking lot, two men were in his car and the trunk was popped. What the hell is this? The men looked up as the sergeant rushed onto the balcony. They ran from the sob and scattered across the road. Those two men, by the sob, get them! Sam rushed out to the railing as the other cops burst into the parking lot. The two men produced submachine guns and rapid fire popped in the night air. Cops were mowed down. The sergeant grabbed Sam by the shirt and yanked him back inside as the outside studio facade and window glass were eaten up by bullets. Nina crawled on her stomach. Sam, what's happening? Who the hell are you people? What have you done? The sergeant stood, his gun pointed upward, and looked down the hall. We'll all go down the back way and lead through the lower level. This is a professional job. Sam took Nina's hand across the room. They were near the corridor when more bullets flew. The sergeant was hammered back, his body pummeled, and his eyes glazed. Sam froze, but quickly closed and locked the door. He pulled Nina, her white dress now sprayed with tiny blood dots, back to the slider. Sam, they'll get us. They'll get us in here. This way. He opened the connecting door and raced into the adjoining suite. But as he nudged the door shut, the other room shook with an intense barrage. She wrapped her arms around him. What did we do? Who are these people? A brusque voice was muffled through the closed door. Kill him, damn it. Green Haze is threatened. Green Haze had no meaning. He brought Nina to the balcony. I'm going down. When I get to the second floor, I'll go over the edge and I'll pull you down. The same thing, down to the first. She nodded as he vaulted the balustrade and gripped the lower railing as he swung his body around to the second floor balcony. Nina was already over the edge when she heard commotion in the original room. He caught her body in her arms. Sam! We Sam covered her mouth and motioned with his head. Voices sounded above as he crawled over the second floor's aluminum railing and leaped onto the first floor patio. Nina followed him along the first floor room windows. The gunfire stopped, but it was only a matter of time before these people figured out they had fled. She grasped his hand and they rounded the corner. Then they sprinted down the asphalt. Sam, what the hell is this? I don't know. We're caught in the middle of something here, Nina. I don't know what it is. Where can we go? He shook his head and pulled her toward the back of the building. They ran to a long white tractor trailer truck parked near the loading bays. The rear doors were open and a metal board connected to the dock, but there was no one unloading the truck. Get in the cab. What? I said get in the cab, Nina. 
She ran by him, climbed up the high running board, and pushed back the chrome handle. They squeezed inside the huge elevated cab as Sam turned the keys. The mighty engine rumbled and Sam moved the stick shift, thinking back to his college job with the moving company. The truck nudged forward like a cargo plane on a small runway. This may only give us a few minutes. Let's get out of here. She was pressed against the high back vinyl seats and cried. Sam looked back in the mirror as the truck bucked across the parking lot. The metal connecting plate fell off the dock and crashed loudly onto the asphalt. He was able to maneuver the vehicle away from the hotel and over the side street curb. Somebody messed up, Nina. They messed up. They've taken us for somebody else. Green haze? What the hell is green haze? We would have been dead now, Sam. What did we do? What did we do? Nothing, he answered, and he steered toward the woods. That poor man, the sergeant. Sam drove past several slab residences and into a tropical thicket. The river ripples reflected in the truck lights ahead. They were about a mile downstream from the bridge when he steered north onto a narrow dirt road. In the mirror, other headlights shined on the treetops. The road was narrow and the overhead branches scraped the cab roof and truck body. They were only a few hundred yards from the river when a car raced around the corner. Damn! Come here, Nina! What now? He checked the mirror again. We have to jump and head for the river. No, let's just get back on the highway. There is no highway. If we don't jump now, we're dead. He opened the door. The brush and the grass whipped by as the engine echoed through the thicket. I'm scared. I'm scared, Sam. Sam grabbed her arm, leaned forward, but lost his grip. He went sailing out of the truck and landed on the grass. As he rolled over, the truck moved for the trees ahead. Headlights tracked them from behind. Nina! She jumped seconds before the rig rammed into a thick row of trees at the turn. Sam sprinted toward her as she dove into the brush. Cars approached. He found her scraped and bleeding, but cogent as he hoisted her up. They ran between the bushes. The lights brightened as the bridge, the city, and the city materialized beyond the thicket. The pursuing car skidded behind the crashed truck. Bright light now streaked through the trees, cutting shadows in the dust. He heard a quick pop, and instantaneously the truck went up in a swirling orange fireball. Oh my God, cried Nina, raising her hands to her mouth. The river, Nina, we have to swim it. They ran to the bank and dove into the murky water. He felt a few stinging cuts as he hit the cold current. For a moment, they were taken by the flow, but he clamped his hand on her dress and steered a course toward the bridge less than a mile away. The smoke from the truck explosion pushed across the water and the woods were ablaze. Sam frantically towed her toward the bridge across the dark river. The men from the hotel were probably sifting through the truck wreckage right now. Why were these men after them? And why had they taken everything from the room? At least five people were dead at the hotel. Something like this would be a major story on the networks, yet they were trapped. As he swam forward in the water, dragging Nina with the current, he wondered if they would ever be safe again. Almost a half an hour later, he reached the bridge pillars. He helped Nina around the concrete support away from the current and then hoisted her on the slope cement. She lay against the round column. We have to get to the police. But he wasn't sure that was the best idea. Whatever was happening was important. It had to be important. No one would send guys in with machine guns unless it were a big deal. The sergeant had said it was a professional operation. 
Sam raised his hands as if he were praying and balanced his chin as he weighed his options. Across the river where they had crashed the truck, several small spotlights now swept the river. My God, they don't stop, Nina. She peered around the support and back to shore. They'll find us. No, no, they won't. But we're not going to the cops. Something like this is too big. They're plugging off those cops like target practice. We have to run. Stay on the run. Where are we going to go? Griff will know what to do. Sam looked out over the water. A number of men stood on the shore next to the lights. The trick was getting out without being seen, keeping the support between them and the lights. Or just head for shore. They'd have a chance to survive once they were out of the water and away from the city. He held Nina again and moved down the river, keeping behind the support. Each stroke through the water now became arduous, but the mighty river pushed them along. It was important that they come ashore away from the bright city lights along the boulevard. Sam swam with the current toward a half-lit city park beyond the road. Port Wall came closer as they floated through the water and he finally grasped the stones. Sam scurried up the edge and pulled Nina over the top. They both staggered across a small gravel walk and onto the grass. For a few minutes, he breathed rapidly, his aching ribs thrust into the ground as he tried to fathom it all. He rolled over and held her hand. From the park, he saw the bridge and the distant spotlights. Someone would order a pursuit now and spare no expense until he and Nina were dead. Green Haze, Chapter 10 The night was endless and the full moon inched over the ocean horizon's silver waters. Grafton sat alone in the darkened cabin, engines humming through the sky, knowing this jet was taking him back to a volatile situation. He had danced around the Chinese intention from the onset and would feel pressured after he landed in Pangaea. There was no guilt concerning his consensual inaction. He was prepared to let the whole affair unravel by itself and take him away from his career and the surrounding maelstrom. He worried more about what was happening domestically. He needed the garrison in Peter's fiasco squelched until he cut the Chinese deal. The people in Florida had messed up. The mission had been simple. His men were supposed to confiscate everything in that St. Augustine hotel room and wait as the Sab approached. Once Peters and his wife had left the car, his people should have removed everything from the car had the contents flown north for evaluation. That part was successful, yet there was no film of the bridge. The four developed roles showed only half-exposed old shots from Iowa and a trip to Illinois during the winter. No photographs of the Peters' trip to Florida were in the batches. Peters must have developed the film by mail which meant the whole bridge incident could be resolved by intercepting his mail back in Iowa. Dealing with the hotel incident was a larger problem. Four officers were dead, the hotel damage was steep, and the Peters were missing. The locals had arrived too quickly, and the Peters must have seen the damages. Unfortunate such mistakes could trigger such a massive blunder. The wall phone rang. Still in thought, he continued gazing out over the ocean and then picked up the line. Yes. Charlie McCabe spoke from back in the office. Edgar Mitchell will be calling you in ten minutes. Thank you. He set the phone back on the wall. 
Now the incident had escalated, as he thought it would, all the way to the director's office. Edgar had worked with him for years in Asia. They knew each other and understood how things could become messed up. Edgar would expect a new plan of action. Grafton picked up his spiced tea and pressed down on the bag with the spoon and let the steamy aroma soothe his face. He sipped the full taste slowly. A story would blame the Peters for the hotel killings. Five teams of strategists scanned computer banks for any background deficiencies on Peters or his wife. Once something was found, they could easily be twisted. With weapons planted in the woods and witnesses found, the onus would shift to the local and state authorities. The Peters would not have a solid defense. He took the phone in his hand and dialed back the office. Give me Curtis, SPO. He waited and lifted the tea to his lips again as the infinite moonlit ocean raced under the jet. The other option, which every man in the field along the East Coast clearly understood, was to eliminate the Peters as soon as possible. Strategic planning. Scrafton. Craig, the guy doesn't even have a traffic violation. His wife is a goody-goody school teacher. They're active in their local town groups and even go to church. They have one child, a one-year-old boy. Both families are clean. I'm finding nothing. Then we need to search deeper, and if necessary, construct something. The farther back in the past, the better. Maybe during their years in college. If we need to take that baby, we could use it as leverage. I understand, Craig. I've been told that Edgar Mitchell is involved in this now. Shall I be expecting a call from him? No. I'll handle Mitchell. Get me the good news before I land. Okay. Grafton cut the line in Dow, Florida. He was connected on a high-frequency microwave band to his units in St. Augustine. Paul Willis? Status, Paul. Craig, we are observing just as you ordered. Ten minutes ago, the local station began feeding a transmission to the cable networks. The feed will be broadcast at the top of the hour. We have it if you want to see it. Not necessary. Willis described the activity near the river after the Peters crashed a stolen truck. All personnel were evacuated back into the city. The bridge was soon cordoned off by local police. A web of state and local offices began a precise and well-orchestrated search along the river. A consensus was building and rumors indicated that the Peters might have something to do with the shooting. That is exactly what Grafton wanted to hear. What do you think happened to Peters and the wife? That would solve a magnitude of problems. Or we can assume the most bizarre and postulate they actually made it across the river. Grafton lifted the tea and furrowed his brow. Even though both individuals were young, not going to the police indicated a poignant assessment of the real situation. They were regrouping, or they were dead. Where could they have gone? question, Paul, is where they're headed and how they're traveling. He looked at the illuminated blue wall clock. It was nearing the top of the hour. Edgar's call was long overdue. He may have been waiting also to watch the cable feed. Call me in an hour or when it's warranted, Paul. Grafton picked up the remote and quickly activated the panel monitor. Cable was running a brief weather summary for the continental United States. He brought the tea to his lips and let the orange spice flavor spread upward into his sinuses. 
Now they were switching to the lead story. His lips tightened and he swallowed the tea. The network logo appeared in the lower right-hand portion of the screen, and a clear shot of the hotel was now broadcast around the world. So much more was riding on this. Good evening. You're looking at the Morenze Hotel in St. Augustine, Florida. Scene of a tragic shooting earlier this evening. Four police officers are officially listed as dead. Three other officers have been medevaced to a Jacksonville, Florida hospital. Conditions unknown at this point. The screen showed the hotel's demolished interior. Things were much simpler when the news was not instantaneous. Now they were zooming in on the balcony bullet holes through the stucco. Grafton was convinced as he glanced down at the panel phone. Edgar Mitchell was viewing the same broadcast, and that was probably delaying his call. The news anchor turned and leaned his shoulder toward the camera. cut to a video shot of a local reporter holding a microphone to the nervous hotel manager. Mr. Mondez, what happened to cause the shooting and the death of the office? The occupants of room 389 returned to the hotel and parked their car outside. They must have seen the broken slider or the local police. Mondez appeared tired. Now we've heard at this time that someone broke into the car outside. Yes, yes, this is true. When did the gunfire start? Right then, it all happened so fast we thought we were going to be killed. There was a long pause and it was clear the manager was not going to say anything else. The reporter faced the camera. The names of the occupants of this room are being withheld. They fled the scene and their whereabouts are unknown right now. Whether they prompted the shooting or any way instigated this incident is unknown. Grafton looked up toward the panel phone. Good, good. Edgar would call now. Eight seconds later, the phone rang. Greg, this is Edgar Mitchell. His voice was strong and convincing. I've just viewed it. I saw it, Edgar. Well, we've just concluded a two-hour meeting and how it relates to the operation. I think having Curtis construct something is the most viable plan right now. If these people are still alive and go to the police, we need to diminish their credibility. What do your people tell you? Are they alive? Unknown. Depends on if they cross the river. I think that did occur because they're gone. But we'll have to wait until daybreak to determine that. All our people are back in the city and the search is being conducted by state, local, and FBI. Stick with the plan. Once your plane is down, we'll have Mbutu scrambling. The administration's support for Mbutu will wane once they think the Pangea government is trying to kill the deputy director of defense strategy. Best case scenario is they send someone in to take him out, which will save us the trouble. True. Once they take down the plane, the rebels save me. We'll elevate Colonel Manville in the world community. And sink Mbutu. Reports indicate more rebel advances today. They're within 30 miles of Argos. We're almost done. Let's just see how I do with the F-16. It's a risky venture, Craig, but you're the guy. Mitchell paused and Grafton peered out the cabin window. I want something on this Peters couple within the hour. I don't care.
care what we have to say. Just make it stick. Agreed. I'll call you. We're all screwed if we don't contain this. You know that, and I know that. Grafton set down the phone. He brought the hot tea to his lips again. Curtis would have something for him very soon, or maybe Cam Pritchard would wrap the whole thing up. They had to address the larger implications. Everyone involved in Green Haze was ruined if they were caught running around the administration and all the efforts to destroy Mbutu. The United States' credibility would be undermined. The operation would culminate in success, and the objectives would be met if his people could control both the Peters and the Garrison situations. Green Haze, Chapter 11 Garrison woke early. Thoughts of the explosion back in the valley had haunted him all night. He was unsure what he was going to do. Promising Keaton not to write about anything was not prudent. Whether he wrote about anything now or saved it for later, he just was not going to let this thing go. Two people who were investigating an overturned van dumping out a lethal virus and their son were dead. A man who contracted the VED was dead. And what was that van doing in the desert? Where was it headed? Garrison sat down at the table again and raised his brows. Richard, you need a wife or a housekeeper. Richard set down the frying pan and nodded. Yeah, maybe. Don't make the mistake I made with Loretta. That was a mistake, Roy. He motioned toward the open patio doors. Let's enjoy a morning here in paradise. Garrison stepped onto the outside patio overlooking the mountains. A glass table with its own landscape of eggs, bacon, sausage, and toast, and cereal looked like Richard's restaurant. He sat on a white vinyl patio chair as his brother set a steaming coffee pot on the table. Ah, you'd never know you owned a restaurant, Richard. His brother half smiled as he scooped an omelet onto Garrison's wide plate. What are you, expecting a dozen other people? Oh, I appreciate your appetite, Roy. You'll take care of this in no time. You're right. You still working all those crazy hours? His brother flipped on the patio TV set. Well, I tried to cut back, but you know how it goes. Good for you, Richard. At least you own your restaurant and not putting hours in for somebody else. All those years that you bounce between those dives. Garrison thought back to when they were kids. How Richard would always cook something in Mom's kitchen or out on the outside grill. By the time they were teenagers, Mother wasn't cooking at all. Nor did she till the day she died eight years ago. He tasted the perfectly prepared omelet and was savoring the flavor as the blood-sprayed images of a hotel room came on the little TV screen. The hell happened now? Another terrorist group? Some cops were killed in Florida. Looks like the mob or something, Roy. Ask your paper to send you down there. Garrison let the well-buttered toast munch between his teeth. You haven't said much about what brought you up here. I know you've been physically exhausted and distressed ever since you got here. Richard sat down with him and poured a grainy cereal into a glass bowl. Yeah, I'm tired, and I don't even know whether I'm going to run with the story. A couple were killed just after I interviewed them two nights ago. I was right outside the blast. Natural gas. Was it? I have my doubts. They are on to something, Richard. Did you hear that story about the people dying from VED in the desert? Richard crunched on the cereal and nodded. Yeah, I think I read something about it. 
keep this under your hat, but those people reported that a van containing VED did overturn. The guy who claimed to have seen it died of VED. He said military vehicles appeared and cleaned up the whole thing. I was kind of skeptical until the damn ranch house blew up. Not only that, Richard, if I hadn't gone out to the car for my recorder, I wouldn't be here now. Richard continued to eat the cereal. He set down the spoon and rested his chin atop his propped arms. Roy, how many times have you put me through this? First, I used to freak out when you told me about some of the characters you went after back in the city. Getting shot at and landing up in the hospital so many times over the years, you always managed to squeeze out of it. Richard, this is big. I can feel it. If I break this story, if, 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 Roy... Take care of yourself when you get back. Start writing a society column or something like that. Okay, you'll see. They talked about the old days back in New Jersey. Garrison would try to plan out some kind of reunion every time he saw Richard, but the plans inevitably fell through after he returned to Los Angeles. When they finished breakfast, Richard gave him a tour of the lush, manicured grounds. If the extent of new shrubs and flowers were an indication of the restaurant's viability, Richard must have had a good year. Dad always talked about a restaurant, Richard. They walked up the long, crushed stone drive. You're fulfilling the dream. Well, Dad would like my place. He stopped by the black and white mailbox that looked like a cow. Inside was a stack of letters, bills, and junk mail. He closed the box and headed down to the highway. We redid the bar, Roy. It looks like something out of the 1890s. Good, I could use a drink. Richard smiled and thumbed through the mail as he walked. Garrison looked at the massive array of shrubs lining the house. What is this? He held up a brown-wrapped square no more than five inches from corner to corner. It was addressed to Richard but postmarked from Merced, California. The Campbells. Merced. God Almighty. What the hell did they mail up here? Garrison said nothing for a second and held out his hand. His confused brother put the package in his hand. Garrison attacked the tape furiously and pulled a CD out of a plastic case. They sent that computer junk up here before I went to Merced. This is the big one, Roy. This is it. I need a computer. You have a computer, Richard. No, my computer is at the restaurant. I need to get to a computer right now. You have no idea what this could mean. This is the break I've been looking for. Garrison was not sure if somebody was tailing Richard's Mercedes. Maybe he was just getting paranoid because he had a CD threatening to break this VED thing wide open. A brown sedan kept pulling out of traffic when Richard slowed. For 20 minutes, Garrison played a guessing game and made Richard take an alternative route. He gripped the CD. The CD was formatted with something important. What about the VED? Why was it being transported? What the hell are they doing with it? People who would blow up a house have no morals, Roy. They're probably infecting people somewhere. I need to check that out. VED outbreaks anywhere. Maybe Lynette would have explained the VED if he had returned to the house and spoke with her again. But now she was dead. And she had mailed this, not knowing if Garrison would go to his brother's house before coming to Merced. He turned again. I swear to God, somebody is following us. Well, I felt that myself, but I haven't seen anyone. 
They have to be watching me. Take a right up here. Just evade them. Richard nodded, and they rolled down a constricted lane. Buildings zipped by as garrison focused behind. Once out on the main road, Richard went left. The restaurant was just ahead. They spun into a small lot across the street. Garrison scanned the sidewalk, and they hurried toward the rear kitchen area. As they entered the building, he saw no sign of a tailing car or people watching outside. Richard brought him over to the business office next to the coat room. He leaned over, booted up the computer system, and motioned his brother to the desk. A picture of San Francisco, taken from across the bay, filled the screen with a dozen aqua icons. You get this thing going, Roy. I'm just going to walk through the restaurant. Garrison nodded as Richard headed inside. He pulled the chair across the room, removed the CD from the case, and quickly inserted it into the drive. Green light lit, and he quickly clicked the mouse into the run position. He typed in the D drive, and the monitor filled with formulas and colorful three-dimensional representations of elaborate chemicals. The next few pages were easier to understand. He had viewed the structure of the morotoxin, the agent Mrs. Campbell claimed was used in the desert to kill the VED. He still had to read slowly, but he was able to gain a general understanding of how this chemical killed the virus, but it deposited a poisonous residue. Somebody must have neutralized the chemical and further cleaned up the mess. He flipped to the next section entitled Pizak Compound. More graphics unfolded in brilliant colors before him. Where in God's name did she get this stuff? You have to be conversant in college chemistry. This is beyond anything Mr. Roy Garrison, average reporter with four years at USC, was going to understand. Time to call in the professors and the brain trust was more confusing as he delved deeper. What the hell am I supposed to do with all this advanced chemistry stuff? Garrison shook his head when his brother returned to the room, but Richard, whose college major was business, soon crossed his eyes at the screen. Neither man had the chemical or pharmaceutical knowledge to understand the composition of the compound and how it was used. And this was only the beginning of the contents of the CD. Somebody called Richard out front, and he was probably glad to leave the complexities on the screen. Pizak compound, Pizak compound. You don't have to be a biochemist, Roy, to know that that's the key. It's slang for all that gobbledygook on the CD. Pizak compound. Who manufactures Pizak compound? He leaned back and closed his eyes. Finding out the manufacturer of both the morotoxin and the Pizak compounds was critical but he still kept coming back to the disease itself. Reasoning this thing out might give him more perspective. He visualized a map of California. Bakersfield was less than 200 miles from Merced. Who would be driving with vials of VED through the valley? Richard, I need a map of California. One of the waiters came in from the front office. Garrison looked up from the monitor. Tell my brother I need a map of California. The guy nodded and left. Where did the van come from and where was it going? All the basic questions were vital. And why was it traveling anywhere with all that stuff loaded in back? It was an important story, but he needed help with all the facts before he dared submit anything for publication. This is California. South on one side, north on the other. Great, thanks. Garrison unfolded the map across the desk. He ran his fingers up the green interstate line to Bakersfield. Merced was on the other side and he quickly flipped the map. Then he planted his finger right next to the mountain range outside of town. 
Without looking at the map, he moved his finger along the interstate again, checking the various mountain ranges and state roads off to the side. He knew he was almost as far north as San Francisco when he saw a military access road. To the east was a thin red perforated line, and stamped in bold letters was what he had been looking for. Dempsey Cullen Reservation. A number of base roads and a long airstrip were printed right on the map. He looked down to Merced. Grover Moses said the vehicles arrived after he witnessed the van accident. Then the whole entourage headed back up the interstate. It was impossible to gauge the accurate time frames. Under normal conditions, the reservation was about an hour and a half away from Merced. So they brought the van up to the base or back to the base. He wasn't sure if Hobson would run with a story about the military, especially if it was classified. Must be classified, Roy. They just blew up a house that you were supposed to be at and killed people who were looking into this thing. How could transportation of VED not be classified? Stupid idiots. Find anything? asked Richard. Garrison turned. I need to start checking and find out if there have been any outbreaks of VED. Related to that van? I don't know, Richard. I have to find out who manufactures the chemicals on the CD. Better you than me, brother. Listen, I have to go downtown. I have a meeting with the union. Are you staying? Yeah, if it's all right. Good, good. I'll be back in a few hours. Have something to eat, Roy. Maybe we can catch a show tonight. Garrison nodded. In the meantime, I'll try the local newspaper. You want a ride downtown, Roy? No. I'm going to take a ride on the internet. Richard paused, crinkled his brow, and shook his head as he put his hand on Garrison's shoulder. I can get into the dispatch's files if I have to. Thanks for the use of the computer, bro. Be my guest. He briefly looked down at the map. I hope you don't get into this too deep, Roy. Garrison looked up. Me too. He folded up the map once his brother had left and sat in front of the screen. The whole thing made him more nervous with each passing minute. He closed the program, pulled the CD, and placed it in the plastic case. Then he stuffed it in his back pocket. The computer screen changed back to the San Francisco wallpaper. He clicked on the icon and prepared to link into his newspaper's computer. He casually leaned back in the chair, rubbed his eyes, and waited for the connection. But something shook the building and knocked things off the desk. The short-lived nature of the shock convinced him this was not an earthquake, and he leaped from the chair. He heard commotion outside the room and immediately thought of Richard. His thoughts were filled with images of the Mercedes blowing up, and his heart flew out of control. He darted into the restaurant, but did not go back to the front door. Something made him turn and move upstairs into the storage loft. When he reached the top of the stairs, machine gun fire erupted in the office below, and he heard what sounded like the computer screen imploding. He didn't move until the firing stopped. Someone, maybe Keaton's people, had followed him. Downstairs, desk drawers were opened and things crashed onto the floor. They were searching for the CD. He checked his pocket. Whomever was downstairs quickly left. Garrison thought it wise not to move. He didn't hurry down the stairs until some of the restaurant personnel came running into the office. Bullets had torn through the office walls and the computer had indeed been destroyed. Damn. Mr. Garrison, your brother, he's dead. They blew up his car. No, no, not Richard. This is my fault. Damn, this is all my fault. Richard! Garrison's mind overloaded. 
He still felt Richard's hand on his shoulder from just minutes before. Richard's face back at breakfast faded into an odd scene of Christmas morning when they were nine or ten years old. They were brightly wrapped presents at his parents' old New Jersey house. He closed his eyes and prayed Richard had been spared any pain. Listen carefully. He looked up toward the doorway. The machine gunner could easily come back. I need you to get me out of here now. Follow me out the entrance. No, I'm afraid someone will hit me. Get me out of here without being seen. The waiter nodded and motioned Garrison out of the room. They went down a darkened side corridor and ended up in the kitchen. His brother's touch would not go away. They were nearing the back entrance when the door flung open and he looked a red-headed middle-aged guy with an automatic weapon squarely in the eye. The gun slowly moved upward. Garrison tightened his mouth and prepared to be hit. But the waiter plugged the red-headed guy with a small handgun. The man and the automatic weapon fell to the corridor floor. The waiter picked up the rifle as the busboys pulled out the linens and uniforms from a canvas laundry cart. Garrison hopped inside. Get me the hell out of this area. To a bus or a taxi. Out. Just keep pushing this thing. Someone threw some of the laundry over his body and the car rolled across the bumpy tiles. They slowed and the bright sun glowed through the canvas sides. The rollers hit the asphalt, producing a low-pitched hum as they gained speed. He sensed them veering right. For ten minutes, he waited for the onslaught of machine gun bullets, but nothing happened. The blue sky above hurt his eyes when they removed the linens. One of the busboys reached the cart and helped him out. In broken English, the kid spoke about a bus stop across the chain-link enclosed baseball field. Garrison nodded, checked for the CD, and sprinted across the street. He couldn't believe that Richard was dead. The busboy and a man in a white uniform, probably a dishwasher or a cook, scattered. Garrison jumped the fence and ran behind the stands. All the while, he kept peering over his shoulder, but there was no sign of any pursuers. Waves of grief were interspersed with old images of Richard. They wanted him dead because of what he knew or what they thought he knew, which signaled that Garrison had stumbled onto something significant. He squeezed through a small opening in the fence. When he reached the bus stop, he swayed away from the bench and hid behind the telephone pole. For 15 minutes, he was a potential target and was about to break into a run when he heard the bus's engine at the road fork. Something happened back at the laundry cart across the baseball field. Two men in jogging outfits carrying guns alongside their sweatshirts pulled out the linens and tipped the cart over. Garrison stayed behind the pole as the bus chugged up the hill and finally came to a stop. He walked slowly across the sidewalk and up the bus stairs. Once he had paid the fare, he rushed to one of the side windows. The two joggers had hurdled the first chain-link fence and were sprinting down toward the first baseline and the outfield. The bus had not moved, and some older lady up front was arguing about her change. He clenched his fists and his stomach churned. The two men now concealed their weapons and neared the right-field sidelined fence. They leaped the fence as the bus started up the hill. These guys might catch the bus at the next stop. They turned on the sidewalk and raced like Olympic runners along the cement. But the bus gained speed and had about 150 yards on the two guys. Garrison moved up the aisle and leaned downward toward the rear window. They were still racing after the bus. He shuffled back to the front. The next stop. Where's the next stop? What was that, sir? You really have to sit down. The next stop. Oak and Pleasant. Where? Right over there. Just hold your horses. I have to stop at the light. 
Garrison leaned down again and peered over the five-corner intersection. Run the light. What? I said run the light. He reached in his pocket and pulled out a hundred-dollar bill. Well, I'd be fired if I... The driver stared at the bill. On the other hand, we have to keep our patrons happy. <laughs> he pushed down the accelerator. Cars swerved and horns blasted. Garrison looked behind. The guys had not reached the hilltop. He put the hundred in the driver's uniform pocket as the bus slowly pulled to the stop. Thanks. Garrison pried open the doors himself and jumped onto the cement. He rounded the bus and crossed between houses, falling to the dirt several times, but he scrambled back to his feet. His side muscles ached as he scaled the fences and crawled through shrubbery, but the jogging pursuers were gone. He moved down the adjacent street hill. The two men would have caught the bus, and he would be dead now, just like Richard, if the bus had stopped at the light. They killed Richard. The bastards. The no-good bastards. Dead. He's dead. Richard. Richard! They killed him, just like the Campbells. What are they doing? Garrison kept running, even though his legs were cramped. He couldn't stop and had to assume these people were still tailing him. The CD jiggled in his pocket as he raced down the sidewalk like a runner nearing the end of a marathon. He had to call the dispatch before it was too late, talk to Hobson, and get some protection back to Los Angeles. Green Haze, Chapter 12 Grafton peered out a military helicopter window. He would be met by General Seville, but he was uncertain about Seville's loyalties. From earlier reports, he had strong suspicions that the general was talking to power brokers. It was paramount to gauge the general's intentions as things changed rapidly with the rebels' advance less than 30 miles from the city. Agos's harbor, indented from the deep blue ocean, was dotted with black and red oil tankers of various registries. At this height, the dark Orwell derricks formed an intricate network across the horizon. The massive oil refinery works were south of the capital. He thought of everyone vying like wild dogs after the oil stored in the huge white tanks. Foremost in his thoughts was the inevitable course set in motion with the Chinese. They would pursue him before he even breathed the city's tainted air. The trapper swung near clean-faced modern skyscrapers, most built within the last ten years, and the older buildings were stained with industrial pollution. Decrepit shanties were crammed into every square inch of red soil, and a fleet of dilapidated buses and battered automobiles pulsed along the roads and highways. To the east were a few traces of black smoke in the sky, but no immediate explosions. Mbutu's forces were unable to check the rebel advance inland. Other reports claimed that Seville had pulled government forces back to defend Argos. Grafton was unsure how this move related to the Chinese influence. Edgar Mitchell had ensured Grafton's official mission was in place. He would depart Argos in an F-16 tomorrow morning. The flight, structured as reconnaissance, had already been transmitted to Colonel Manville back at his mountain base. At exactly 10.15 a.m. local time, he would push the ejection button and parachute to a point 15 kilometers west of Lake Shire in the mountain camps. At 10.19, the rebel forces would down the F-16. Their competency in launching missiles was the weak link. He had been assured by Mitchell of thorough training outside the country. 
the news from the United States was out of his control and causing great concern. It was very possible that Garrison had a computer copy that might open up everything to outside forces. At this point, he was not sure the Peters had drowned in the St. John's River. The state police had divers out there all day yesterday. He had issued commands beyond that assumption, advising the FBI and adjoining states to have their people be on alert. Not-so-subtle accusations about the Peters' complicity in the hotel shootout were floated through informants, although the news services had not yet fully picked it up. The ripples would be incalculable if either Garrison or the Peters allowed the press to start digging. The helicopter circled one of the tallest buildings, a smooth white concrete facade structure built by Diversified International only three years ago. All of the government offices were housed behind tiny windows on the 45th and 46th floors, although the presidential palace was located north of the city on the bay. The city faded as they descended and finally touched down on the roof's concrete pad. Grafton looked out at his window perch and grabbed his briefcase. Seville and Mbuto's envoys stood near the elevator doors. He had to convince these people that the United States was firmly behind their government, despite the rebel threats. Agency policy was just the opposite. The engines were cut and the blades slowed. He worried about the flamboyant Manville and how his theatrics might put everything else in jeopardy, but his contacts with Colonel Manville were no longer the trickiest part of this trip. Whatever deals he made with the Chinese needed gingerly treatment. Grafton's career, no matter what happened, had now ended because he had hesitated when approached by operatives. He turned and checked his Luger, then placed it back in his shoulder strap. The hatchway was lowered by one of the guards and Grafton moved ahead. Standing ten feet away was Ian Summer, the U.S. ambassador. A white man and two black men, all wearing military fatigues, and Seville, in full military dress, circled around them. Grafton walked with his hand extended. General Seville, the tall black man, his ego almost as large as his six-foot-five frame, smiled, his white teeth glistening as he shook Grafton's hand. Grafton suspected the general, who might end up his own ally in this wild scheme, was betraying Mbutu by not pushing the rebels back. But he doubted whether Seville was yet cognizant of Grafton's contacts with the Chinese agents. Pleased to see you, Craig. Pleased to see you. You're looking well, General. I wish I could say the situation warranted such a description. Things do not look good here, Craig. I have to leave here in a half an hour. Is Argos going to fall? I don't know. The siege is laid. We could hold on for months, but nothing has hit the city. We still hold the high ground above the plains. He shook his head. Everything is in abeyance. Grafton nodded. It was in his power once he had begun his recognizance mission and landed behind the lines to dictate troop deployments to Manville against Seville, all the while bargaining with the Chinese. He stared at Seville, contemplating what role this man would play in the next two weeks as events unfolded. He could end up as ruler of the country. May I present my secretaries, Pilts and Balford? Grafton quickly shook their hand. And of course you know Ian Summers, our roving ambassador. Grafton smiled, but he didn't trust the son of a bitch. Three of his men had been betrayed by Summers in South Africa five years ago, but nailing Summers would have breached security. Hey, Craig, it's uh, good to receive such a high-level operative out here. Grafton squinted. Summers looked out of place in the military fatigues. 
All the men followed Seville toward the doors ahead. My reports, General, tell me that the rebels have captured the three village towns near Ivonica. One town has fallen, but they hold three. The battles rage as we speak. Your survey flight will leave at 9.30 tomorrow morning. You'll be flying the only operational F-16, Craig. We are just not receiving spare parts from your country. We need to discuss more planes and more parts. I don't uh, set congressional policy, General, but I'll take a look at the situation. The rebels do not understand this country is on the rise. Oil production is soaring. Grafton spoke quickly. So are the prices per barrel. Summers and Interior Minister Pilts produced phony quick laughs. Pilts was making millions by skimming off Mbutu's tariffs. Grafton kept thinking of Colonel Manville's promise to get the prices down. Seville's policies, if he were to obtain power, were nebulous at this point. They were marched by military guards into the elevator. They descended down the skyscraper. Grafton sensed the duplicity as he looked at them and knew why he had not thwarted the Chinese overtones. He was tired of judging every man, summing up and assessing situations and living in perpetual fear for his own life. The car slowed and the doors rumbled open. Across the darkened corridor was a lavishly decorated set of suites overlooking the bay. From this angle, none of the shanties were visible. The corridor doors were closed and Grafton sat alone across from the others at a long teak table. This was not just a meeting, laden with Pangean propaganda, but Seville's own brand of nonsense, interspersed with overconfidence. Grafton could hear the government line about the necessity of keeping the high price levels because of the war against the rebels. It was all a game, just like Seville's colorful fake military medals shaking on his green uniform. Grafton produced a clear image of the country's topography in his mind. The fallen village was exactly 32 kilometers from the city along the main highway. Seville should have already counterattacked. Instead, he said the rebels were armed and incapable of ever reaching Argos. Leaning back in the chair, Grafton longed to leave the liars and the double crosses behind. He would assume a nameless identity on some remote Aegean Sea island and never be heard from again. Once back in his suite, he checked for bugging equipment. He located three crude devices deposited around the front room and the bedroom. By coming to Pangaea alone, he had not only boosted his credibility with Seville, but he fostered the illusion that the general was in control. He furthered that illusion by allowing them to listen to his communications. He walked to the window. At night, the city looked remarkably modern, the poverty shielded in darkness. Out on the sea, the oil platform's red lights blinked slowly and the yellow tanker beacons crept across the still waters. He counted 16 tankers and 57 platforms. Those platforms were built by the British companies and had been appropriated by Mbutu after he seized control. The tiny transmitter in his ear beeped softly. He leaned closer to the window. The 8 o'clock satellite transmission commenced and the news was not good. Cam Pritchard rapidly lost his grip as events escalated. Garrison was still on the loose somewhere in California, and the news media was circulating a story about the Peters drowning in Florida. Grafton needed to speak with the Chinese envoy soon. He left his orders intact for both situations. Garrison and the Peters would be killed on sight. 
Green Haze, Chapter 13. Sam tucked the morning paper under his arm and carried the coffee and donuts across the Kentucky truck stop. He and Nina both wore baseball caps stolen at a rest area in Georgia, and their wrinkled clothes had now dried. The sheer panic of the last two days had not subsided, and his stomach tumbled like an electric clothes dryer on a perpetual cycle. The hotel shootout was now a national news story, yet Griff had still agreed to hide them in Paducah. The intrigue seemed to tantalize Griff, as if he were involved in some college prank. Sam was constantly thinking about St. Augustine and was convinced larger things were happening. Nothing else he owned or he and Nina did on vacation, other than snapping bridge pictures, would have caused such a violent incident. On the phone, Griff was oblivious to the photograph's importance. Containing Nina was another problem. On numerous occasions, he prevented her from calling her parents back home in Marquette. She often screamed in the night, worried about Jason's safety, and feared everyone would think they were dead. Sam figured the phone lines in Marquette were tapped, and the town was inundated with press and others asking questions. Nina creaked open the phone booth door and set the coffee on the stainless steel shelf. She bit ferociously into the jelly donut. Her crystal blue eyes were boarded with thin little red blood vessels. He wiped the sugar off her chin. How long until Griff gets here, Sam? Sam looked down at his still-functioning watch. This thing is 13 years old. When they said it was waterproof, they meant waterproof. Nina just stared into space. I'll give Griff another hour. Can we call from his house? Look, uh, let's regroup at Griff's. How the hell do we get out of this? I worry about our baby. People will think we're dead. I worry about us. As her hair whipped around in the gust, he steadied her shoulders. Nina, we're going to make it. I don't know how, but we will. Once those pictures are at Griff's house, we'll find out what's so important to those people that are trying to kill us. Might not be the pictures. Maybe we saw something at the beach or at the hotel. That next room. Green haze. That's what we heard them say. He gulped his coffee and opened the newspaper. There was nothing about the hotel on the first few pages, but as he unfolded the paper, he found a wire story on page six. They're calling off the river search. Nina held his hand and her voice was shaky. I can't even believe we got out of this alive. If only they had left us alone. I know. What pictures could be so bad that... Could be anything. We'll have to wait. Then he thought, what if they think we're dead? Who? The clown's trying to kill us. Maybe they'll back off. They won't leave us alone until they find our bodies. She finished the donut, wiped her lips, and drank some coffee as she shook her head. What the hell are we going to do? Even if we understand what happened, who do we call? How do we get help? What if it's some radical group, drug cartel? She began crying again, and he held her. It's all right, Nina. We'll figure this damn thing out. But he didn't really believe his own words. Getting out of the path of these killers was not easy. If we know what we're dealing with... He held her in the moist air, the foggy acrylic phone booth, his only shield against the outside world. Cars and trucks spun up water clouds off the interstate. Sam saw no quick way out, but had to remain optimistic, or the forces threatening their lives would consume him. At least Griff would be here soon, and they could have the company of another human being. They stood cautiously under the bus stop canopy for the next 45 minutes. 
The drizzle persisted, but the constant feeling that the men with the machine guns would appear frazzled his nerves. He sensed a great relief and security when Nina spotted Griff's shiny red pickup moving into the truck stop. As they quickly ran through the rain, Sam scanned the area before flagging down the truck. His old friend slowed and rolled down the window. Hey, SP! You look like hell, both of you! Then he opened the door and they moved inside. All three embraced near the dumpster. There were tears in Griff's dark eyes. Sam shook his hand and thought back fifteen years. He saw the young, freckle-faced kid named Mike Griffin, beer bottle in hand and riding up and down the elevators at the Michigan College dorm. Griff, after three days in the back of poultry trucks, moving vans, and a motorcycle, it sure the hell is good to see you. His pudgy friend, still freckled, looked confused and crunched his nose. What the hell happened? Those reports said that you two were involved in a Florida shootout. Sam looked around and quickly ushered them back toward the truck. Griff, let's get out of here right now. Griff nodded and they climbed in the cab. He turned down the stereo's country music and the wipers started as he tore across the parking lot. You said on the phone that somebody was trying to kill you. Sam was relieved inside the warmer, drier cab. Country 103. Griff smiled and looked over his shoulder as he pulled up the bridge ramp. As they crossed the highway, Sam held Nina's hand. Griff, I can only guess what happened. We came back to the hotel and saw that someone had broken into the room. There were cops outside, and we were rushed upstairs to the third floor. Is that when they started firing? No, we went to the room first. Nina leaned forward as Griff zoomed down the ramp. Griff, they took everything. All the stuff in the room. I'll get to my theories, said Sam. Then we look in the parking lot. These guys out there going through the sob. So the cops, of course, go flying out of the hotel room, and we follow them. The other guys from the outside, at least I think it was them, opened fire with automatic weapons. It was bizarre, Griff. We ducked back in the room, locked the door, and went running to the next suite. That's the only thing that bought us time, said Nina. Sam nodded. Then they shoot up our room door. See, we're in the other room now. They run inside and we can hear them. Nina looked at Sam. Green haze. Griff tilted his head and raised his brow. What the hell does that mean? Good question, Griffy, good question. We heard them yelling that they had to kill us or all of Green Haze would be threatened. Sounds like a radical group. Sam rubbed his eyes and looked at his friend. I don't know. I spent the last 72 hours trying to figure that out. It's a dead end and I don't have the information. Sam described their escape from the hotel and the truck crash in the woods. His friend was astonished how they had crossed the river and eventually escaped by hitching a ride on a huge motorcycle. Once away from the scene, they were able to flag down a series of trucks and were transported hundreds of miles away. I was just casually shooting my rolls along the river that afternoon, Griff. The truck moved quickly down the rain-soaked highway. Sam thinks he photographed something to do with this green haze. Or people. I remember some cars parked along the river. That might be it. I also saw some people, three men talking on the bridge. And I took some pictures of the riverbank after I switched lenses. When silence filled the cab, Griff slowly turned up the music. Through the steel guitar twang, he stared ahead. Has to be the guys on the bridge, Sam. Yeah, yeah, we thought that too. I want to know who those guys were and why they were on the bridge. Fortunately, you'll have to rely on your memory.
said Griff. Wrong, country boy. Sam turned toward his friend. I filled out the lab mailers. I knew we were going to your house. The photographs should be arriving very soon. My house? Nina looked over. Nobody knew we were seeing you, Griff. Everyone else thought we were coming back to Marquette on Monday. Griff nodded and gazed down the highway. Like a strobe light, the sun broke through the clouds and hit the landscape's blossoming foliage. You guys need to call the FBI or something. Sam grit his teeth. I don't trust them either. Call the news network, SP. And alert our machine gun friends? That's true. You're trapped. Maybe. As a private citizen, how would he track down the identities of three unknown men standing on a Florida bridge? If he had photographed one of the cars or someone inside the city park, the situation would be the same. Griff was right. They were trapped. Griff's personality hadn't changed much since college 15 years ago. He believed he could do anything. He was already planning things with his vacant rental properties around the city. He still liked to brag and was prone to exaggeration. Exactly what they needed. Griff's company gave them an added security. Griff was also making wild promises about what he could do with his computers. Ever since personal computers came in vogue, Griff had claimed he was an expert. Over the years, Sam had listened to Griff's expertise with IBM XT's, 386's, 486's, Windows 95. When Pentium chips came out, Sam couldn't stop his pontificating. Now he threw out buzzwords and jargon that Sam didn't understand and kept rambling on about scanning pictures. But Sam was thinking more about survival and rolled his eyes as Nina rested her head on his shoulder. By the time they pulled into a series of lime green and white aluminum-sided triple-deckers, Sam now remembered why he had left his dorm senior year and moved away from Griff's speeches. Back then, he recanted a month later and let Griff move into his apartment. Maybe it was time now for Griff to return the favor. Sam helped Nina from the truck. She looked fatigued and suggested that they both rest. They climbed onto a creaky wood porch and opened the frosted glass doors and then trudged up the staircase to the top floor. The apartment's urethane wood floors, braided rugs, and flowery wallpaper were renovated better than they expected. The white trim was freshly painted, and Griff had even placed plants around the place. Sam headed for the phone. He removed his mailer slip from the wallet and dialed the lab, but he quickly hung up and shook his head. I don't dare check. I can call you right away when the mailers arrive, SP. I don't want them sitting in your mailbox, Griff. That leaves the door wide open. In his mind, men with guns waited behind the shrubbery for that mail delivery. You're starting to make me feel paranoid. Have a little faith. I trust no one at this point, said Sam. Nina's continued silence unnerved him. The dark circles carved under her eyes and her wind-blown hair gave her the appearance of a frenzied lunatic dragged off the street. Well, you're safe up here, and I don't see how anybody could track you down. When do I see you guys? Maybe once a year? Nina's eyelids hung heavy as she nodded. Nina, let's get you into bed. Get some shut-eye, said Sam. He brought her into the back bedroom, drew the shades, and pulled back an old blue embroidered quilt. She sat on the edge, and then he took off her sneakers and socks and helped her under the covers. Less than three days before, they were romping in the hotel room bed, nearing the end of a perfect vacation. Now the world was closing in around them. Sam shut the door gently and looked at Griff back at the kitchen counter. Really appreciate this, Griff. Hey, what are friends for? He shook Griff's smooth-skinned hand. 
They could track you down given enough time. Griff put his hands inside his leather coat. You don't even know who they are. They're ruthless and they want us dead. All because of some picture on a bridge? Asked Griff. Sam nodded from the window and pulled back the translucent shade. An auto body across the street was strewn with old cars inside a stockade fence and boarded by more residences along the road. The sporadic street traffic would highlight anything unusual. I don't know what else it could be. Nina and I live sheltered lives in a hick little Iowa town. Why would somebody be out to kill us? Listen, I know some local people in one of my apartment buildings. Informants, security people, they have connections. No, absolutely not. I told you, I trust no one. What about me? Sam smiled and hit his friend in the arm. Especially you. Have I ever let you down? Well, let's see. Griff grinned until his dark eyes became slits. Come on, we've been friends for 20 years. I'm not holding that against you. Griff leaned on the counter and had the faraway dreamer's look. It's the same look he had at school when he was planning some practical joke, like throwing paint balloons out of the dorms. You know, we really had some good times back in Michigan. Oh, those days seem so simple now, like worrying about your next date or what course you're going to take next semester. You were going to open a studio in New York, but you didn't want to do portraits. I still don't want to do portraits, but I've given up on New York. Then he raised his index finger and thought, You were going to be a broker on the stock exchange. We were going to meet for lunch in the financial district. Yeah, Paducah. Sam laughed. He hadn't laughed since he and Nina were at Domingo's. That seemed like years ago. We both went back to our hometowns. Yeah, and you ended up marrying your steady girl from high school. You're so predictable, SP. Someone kicked the outside door. Sam took three steps toward Nina's bedroom and wished he had a gun. With a swift knock, Griff went to the door and Sam's heart surged. Hey, who is it? Asked Griff, leaning forward. Mrs. Winters! I need to talk to you about a leak under the sink, Griffith. Sam was afraid, once Griff opened the door, that the men would spray the place with their automatic rifle bullets. Griff slowly reached for the glass doorknob and turned it quickly. A small lady in a pink shawl stood with her arms crossed and adjusted her glasses. Griff gave her some line about sending an apprentice over to fix the sink. She said she didn't care who fixed it as long as it was fixed. I'll get him tonight, Mrs. Winters, I promise, I promise. If I can't get him, then I'll call my office. Well, I've been calling your office. Oh, well, then he'll be up there then. He slowly closed the door and she was gone. Griff looked startled as he kept his back against the door. Now I know what you mean about people following you. It could happen at any time, couldn't it? As I opened the door, I just wasn't sure who was on the other side. I wonder if we'll ever be sure again. Craig Grafton is savvy, cool, and experienced, even with Nina and Sam on the run. Sam having photographs of the three men is a threat to national security. Grafton is also aware of the persistent Roy Garrison, who because of his determination has allowed his brother to be brought into the agency web and subsequently murdered. Next week the vice tightens as Grafton continues his work and Garrison and Sam and Nina attempt to evade the massive search now underway across the globe. I'm Robert P. Fitton, safe and secure at my writing perch. See you next time, unless they catch me.
all of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.